0: You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is Episode 38. Welcome to another Olympic special edition of the show. And have I got a story for you? I want you to imagine something. Let's say you've had degenerative hearing loss since birth. Then, at the age of 25, you find out that you're also losing your sight. Time goes on, your condition deteriorates to the point that a few months before your 40th birthday, you're declared legally blind. What do you do? What's your mindset? Today's guest is Katie Kelly, and she found herself in exactly that situation. So what did she do? Well, of course, the very day after being declared legally blind, Katie got on the phone to Triathlon Australia to inquire about becoming a para-triathlete. Now, barely 18 months down the track, Katie is just days away from competing for Australia at the Rio Paralympics. Katie is a remarkable person. Prepare to be blown away by her relentlessly positive outlook on life, her raw excitement as she prepares for the race of her life. We recorded this conversation a few weeks ago when Katie was in training camp at Townsville. And as this episode goes live, she's in the Athletes Village at Rio. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the remarkable Katie Kelly. Katie Kelly, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast.
1: Hey, David. Thank you. It's great to be here. It was
0: great to have you, Katie. We've chatted a couple of times, and the first time we chatted a few weeks ago, you didn't yet know if you were in the Olympic team for Rio. Do you know yet?
1: I don't actually. Well, I sort of do. I guess it's not official in the sense that we've been nominated by Triathlon Australia, a bunch of Australian para triathlete and the next step now is um, official confirmation that we've been selected by the Australian Paralympic Committee and they meet have a board meeting and they um, give that a you know final tick so we believe that's happening on the 2nd of August and um, yeah I just can't wait it'll be great to finally be able to tell friends and family that yes I am officially on the Australian Paralympic team.
0: So it sounds like it's pretty much a done deal. They've just got to do the official signing off. Is that where it's at?
1: Pretty much. and But I guess you, you never say, you know, it's never certain until you hear those words. But for certainly for my end, I've met all the criteria and requirements and Triathlon Australia have put me forward. So...
0: We're in good shape. You're, it sounds like you are in good shape now. With that little bit of doubt hanging over your head, is there any difficulty motivating yourself for the type of training that you must be doing at the moment?
1: No, not at all. <sighs> I mean, yesterday or two days ago it was 50 days to go until mm. the Paralympics kick off in Rio, and my heart skipped a beat. So I just thought. <laughs> 50 days too close, you know. Um, every day is so critical and, you know, I'm just loving this whole experience of my training. So very much focused on every session is the quality of those sessions and the output is very, you know, it's absolutely critical. We do good stats, So there's no problem with motivation, that's for sure.
0: I bet there's not. It's such a fascinating time that you're at and we're going to talk a little bit about your training later, but First of all, I'm really keen to talk about your story leading up to now. You know, the things that I know are just incredible. January 2015, you were declared legally blind. Now, the thing that most people would do would be maybe go into their shell and and start reflecting on themselves and feeling sorry for themselves, the thing that you do the very next day, I believe, you contact Triathlon Australia to find out what it's going to take for you to become a para-triathlete. That's an incredible response.
1: Well, I guess in some ways, I sort of think that we're all capable of that response. And for me, it did seem like the logical thing to do (laughs) because I'm always just sort of you know, I think we all set our goals, but I always think about my goals after the, you know, you know, making sure that when one ends, there's another one on the horizon. And so for me, I had set some goals of what I wanted to do off the field in the sense of away from my day job in marketing. And, and I've always had challenges like an Ironman or, you know, a marathon in Norway or something like that. And, and I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. So when I was told I was legally blind, I still do what I love doing and how can I modify that? And yeah,
0: so that was the response. And, and it's just
1: simply incredible the, the outcome of that, of, of making that phone call.
0: It is incredible. As I said, January 2015, you were declared legally blind and we'll talk about the specifics of that later. By March of that year, you were competing in an ITU event at Redcliffe and then you won. Two I months mean, later. Yeah,
1: I mean, <laughs> That race to put on the, an Australian race suit with my surname on it—you know—I'd never imagine that. That just that very first race was such a thrill to be racing a, a, a world power triathlon event on our home soil on the Sunshine Coast and with a guide, Laura Cook, and to win that. And you know, each time I sort of, each step of this whole journey, like I just keep pinching myself. It's just been such fun. So yes, there we were. That first. That first race, and that race was critical in showing triathlon Australia what, you know, what, I guess what I was made of and what I was capable of. So it was a good outcome to get that result.
0: So did it just so happen that when, when you did get your, your declaration of legally blind, you were, you were pretty much race ready. I've heard you describe yourself as a weekend warrior. So you were yeah. ready for triathlon as, a, as anybody else who does triathlon yeah. would be. And then when you got yeah. your categorization, you were able just to launch into it and, and hit the ground running
1: yeah I guess that's true, and that was probably one of the great strengths that I'd had a, a, a reasonable history of of running and triathlon, and it's a very difficult sport to come into if you haven't had that, particularly obviously if you if you are vision impaired and so all the nuances around the swimming and the transition and and you know taking off a wetsuit and putting your shoes on and all of that. so but yes, I, I've been one of those people that like to put myself through a bit of pain. <laughs> obviously. Um, yeah, so, you know, I just uh, drive on the, the physical challenge of a half marathon or, you know, a city to surf type run and, and park runs. And, and so I guess um, in many ways without realizing it, uh, in some ways I've been training for this my whole life, you know, just having all different challenges as I've gone along. And, and then I find myself in the elite triathlon scene where I'm actually fit and ready and I just needed obviously a bit more conditioning.
0: It's an incredible story. Now, you talk about the challenges that you've had. You've you've had a lifetime of challenges. At age five, hearing loss was identified in you. And you, yep. so you've been living with that for 35 years. Uh, that's it, wasn't, right, yeah. it wasn't until what, your mid-20s that you were diagnosed with Usher syndrome? Yeah, that's right. And that's a degenerative hearing and sight condition.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, it's an unusual one. And you know, you do hear, I have heard of people who are deaf and blind, and I just can't imagine what that is like. You know, their communication is through touch, and you think about our senses. You know, that all five senses are, are very important to us, and all obviously have different ways for us to communicate and experience days of life. So. I missed out a lot in those early years. You know, um, we didn't have the technology we have today where they're detecting, or, you know, within the first year whether a child has a hearing loss. So, back in the 80s in casino on the North Coast, my mum took me to the doctor and the old doctor, you know, clapped, big clap beside my ear. And that was the test. That was the test. She's fine, you know, off (laughs) she goes. So, it wasn't until, you know, year one and kindergarten that my school teacher picked up on it and from there, there was audiologist tests, and so hearing aids from age five, and and that was pretty, you know, as a kid, and the Mm. only kid in town with hearing aids, and and they're really clunky and loud, and I hated them, and I used to actually leave them at school, and I remember when I was about seven or eight years old, and my teacher noticed that I was taking the hearing aids home on the school bus, because I lived in a country town, and she said, oh, you've got your hearing aids. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to watch um, Country Practice, <laughs> <laughs> the old TV series. So that was a big, there were lots of little milestones like that in me accepting my situation and adapting. And and so, yeah, I, obviously a normal sort of upbringing and lots of sports. And, you know, my develop, my, my parents were fantastic in education was a big part of our upbringing. And, and so then the eye component, I noticed in my mid-20s going out with friends and, you know, just bumping into things here and there and I struggled in car parks and eventually I saw an ophthalmologist and then they put the two and two together that the reason for your hearing loss, which they never knew the cause of it was, and I'm one of five siblings, was this rare degenerative condition called Usher syndrome. So it all made sense, you know, when they said that. So there it was that um, it was a very clinical diagnosis too. He just sort of said, "Yep, yeah, you've got Usher syndrome. I can't quantify how how much sight and hearing you'll lose, but eventually you'll lose both." And he just sort of like sent me on my merry way, and that was that.
0: How did you feel at that moment when he said you'll lose both?
1: It was as a I guess I was about twenty four, twenty five at the time, and I was actually working at the National Rugby League in Sydney, and. You know, at that age, you're you really at the time of your life and you're starting, you've done the hard jars at uni and you, you're launching your career to, and you're you getting your confidence. And for me, it was around that, you know, this fantastic sports marketing career and I had great aspirations. And, and there's a part of you that thinks, you know, this is going to be a step back or am I going to be limited in being able to achieve what I want to achieve? But for me, I think because I'd had the hearing loss and sort of, some of those sort of difficulties in overcoming that and things around my confidence and my ability to catch up with my peers, I think it just made me think, well, if I could handle that, I can handle this, you know. So in some ways I was uh, well resourced to get this sort of diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah, I was sort of – and I just sort of thought, well, you know, those things that I want to do in life, there's a bit more urgency around it. And then uh, in some ways – I've always been very focused, but I think it went up another level in terms of really setting goals and being very clear about always planning ahead and and where do I want to go next and and visualizing that as well. And and that's both within my career, within charity work that I've done and within those sort of challenges that I do on the weekend.
0: So you were well-practiced with the challenges because as you said, you had hearing age since the age of five. You find out 20 years later that That you're also going to lose your sight. And then, about 15 years after that, when I think you were just two months short of your 40th birthday, you were, as we said, declared legally blind. In that period, that 15 year period from when you first understood Usher syndrome to being declared legally blind, was your sight deteriorating slowly? And did that enable you to get used to it gradually?
1: It did and I and I'm lucky in the sense that my there's three types of Usher syndrome and mine is a more mild form in in terms of gradual deterioration. I know people who have been diagnosed in their mid twenties and, you know, they're legally blind by the time they're thirty and, you know, really poor eyesight, you know, by the time they sort of hit their mid thirties. So it has and, and I, I caught up with one of my friends, Ben Felton. He's a, a fantastic, amazing athlete and a pioneer of athletes with vision impairment. And he's another story you'll have to read up on. But Ben always said to me in some ways he found it easier when he lost his sight because as you're losing it, it's that unknown and it's that sort of uncertainty, what's it going to be like? Mm. And there are certainly days like today I was just at a gym in Townsville. <laughs> I walk into the bathroom and because I've got such tunnel vision, I didn't see the low-level bench and I nearly just toppled right over it. And so <laughs> I've always got. I look at my legs. I'm like, oh, I can't remember where that bruise is from. You know? <laughs> and like in a, a new environment where I am in this in the apartment, and I just keep knocking my head on the um, oven top thing. And so over the years, there's been lots of. You have those moments where you you don't see a pole and you just smack bang into it, and it it almost brings you to tears because it's just the shock that something just you just didn't see it and you just. And, you know, there's been examples where I've gone out in Sydney and I've been with my partner and in a restaurant and I've just absolutely (laughs) like nearly rugby tackled someone onto the floor because, you know, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. And so it's interesting that the day-to-day that you forget, you just take, you're so used to it, you just get get on with it. But when people really want to know and I give them details of, yeah, yeah it's actually quite frequent how often I'll bump into someone or, you know, I nearly ran over this dog the other day and the poor owner was just looking at me in shock because people see you and they think, what, you just nearly walked over me. How come you just didn't see me, you know? Yeah. So, and that's where it's good for me to talk about it because vision impairment comes in many forms and because I don't walk get around with a walking stick, although I will soon because it helps other people to see mm it's like a
0: symbol isn't it
1: um, it is yeah and it creates a bit of a barrier so people don't come into that space yeah. where you don't you like you've got lots of black spots so and so that's why i left sydney i was working you know at tabcorp in the city and it just became too hard with when you're in a highly populated area
0: and, and you moved to why, newcastle didn't you
1: yeah i took up a job with the newcastle knights and the jets and and plus, I, you know, I'd done the city lifestyle. I was ready for something a little bit more laid back. And, and Newcastle is really my spiritual home. I would definitely want to get back there.
0: And you, you are a girl from the country, aren't you?
1: That's it. I don't think you can take the country girl <laughs> out, you know. Even today, yeah. So, so what's
0: your prognosis, Katie? You talked about having a, a mild form of Usher syndrome. What is your future in terms of your hearing and your sight?
1: Well, I guess the good thing is with hearing is, you know, it's so fantastic with technology these days and you've got things like cochlear implant and I've started talking to them because the hearing is getting to a point that the technology of hearing aids don't support the audio that I need. So the good thing is, you know, like the cochlear representative said to me, you'll hear better than the rest of (laughs) us." I'm like, great. So that's an advantage. Yes. So the hearing I'll, I'll, I'll be okay with but to, you know it's a big step to take away your natural hearing and to have an implant because you basically mm. cut one down and and have a like an artificial implant to help you hear so that's a big step and then in terms of vision I think it's like when people might have a diagnosis of you know cancer or something like you just sort of focus on uh, what you've got now and mm. staying healthy and doing all those things that you know will help you sort of keep like a, as much as I can keep good eyesight. So I think I'll always have something, but I I don't know and they don't quantify. They don't say, okay, by the time you're, you know, 45, you'll only have X percent. I just take it as it comes and adapt as I, as I go along. So,
0: So of course you are in sports marketing. So you have a very serious professional career outside of triathlon. So before that day in January 2015, when you called Triathlon Australia and asked about your eligibility for para triathlon, were you a full time worker just doing triathlon on the side as a bit of a hobby, were you? Exactly
1: right. Yeah. I mean, for 20 years I've worked in sports administration and, you know, servicing, I guess, on the other side of the fence for elite athletes. And whether that was at ANZ Stadium, where I worked for three years at the Rugby World Cup and State of Origins and Grand Finals and or Melbourne Storm, you know, as part of the 99 Premiership side. And so to be on the other side of the fence was just a, something I'd never imagined, you know.
0: What uh, a fantastic quick transformation from weekend warrior like the rest of us yeah. in January to elite athlete in, in March of the same year. In a strange kind of way, was that declaration of legally blind the best thing that's ever happened to your sporting career?
1: Well, it certainly helped, and that's the irony of it. Some girlfriends of mine were like, "We should do up T-shirts, you know." <laughs>
0: I'm
1: now blind enough to be a elite athlete or something. <laughs> like um, But yeah, in some ways, I think I'm doing it for all of you people, David, all of us that love to. Um,
0: all you know, of us this- hackers.
1: <laughs> and I, I've been a part of that. So you know, it's just, and that's what I have really enjoyed. Is you know, my try, my try buddies, and that they just love here I am at the AIS training and sitting there in my recovery boots or going to the recovery center. And this is what we dream of, you know, and we train so hard for. So I'm very honored and happy to do it in everyone else's honor.
0: But the truth of the matter is that you're no hacker. You were a very good triathlete anyway, no matter where you were competing. And and as it happens, you just got this opportunity. Now, when we organized this talk today, you had to put it off by half an hour because you were having an ice bath, and you sent me a message saying that your coach wouldn't be very happy if you skipped your ice ice bath. So here you are, barely eighteen months later, living the full life of a full time professional athlete.
1: Exactly right. You know, I think about my routine of I'd get up at five a.m. in my working life to get my training in in the morning, so that I'm at work by eight thirty and finish work at six, and then train at night and. And then, so in some ways it you feel a bit indulgent mm. having this sort of lifestyle and I do. Like it's sort of, it is a, a, very much a bubble. It's, it's a bit surreal. And so that's where it's interesting, for example, an 18, 19 year old who comes straight from school and goes into this environment and then that's all they know. And so therefore their expectations are, well, this is how it should be and I've got all these people providing these services for me. So... Obviously, as a mature age athlete, you have a bit better perspective and appreciation that this is here for a short time and, you know, a real consideration of people around you and what everyone is doing to help you get that success.
0: I was about to say that perspective that you have, you came into this world at the age of 40. So you had real perspective on real life and what it was like to have a job and juggle training all at the same time. So you would appreciate this more than anyone, I imagine.
1: I do, because I know this time next year, I'll be back, you know, working almost, I'll probably work part-time, nearly full-time. And yeah, it is like it. And so the thing that's the difference then is I think I'm very aware and very focused on delivering in terms of my training, in terms of putting in the time for recovery, getting my nutrition right, because this is what it's all about, you know. So I'm very focused on doing those things well because there's no excuse not to do
0: it well, you know? Absolutely. How much have you improved as an athlete since you kind of became an elite athlete 18 months ago?
1: Well, I've always done it prior to this was endurance. You know, I love my half marathons, probably my favorite distance Mm -hmm. and half Ironmans, whereas paratriathlon is only a sprint. So it's a 750 swim, 20K ride and a 5K run. So, My training has shifted in terms of intensity and speed work and in some ways I always did triathlon for fun but I took my running seriously and the reason for that was I could never compete seriously in triathlon because I could never really ride fast because of my vision.
0: Right. You
1: know, I was always very cautious and I'd sit at the back of the pack and likewise in the swim i just go everywhere but where the boy is. (laughs) I can't. And so I end up doing this big S rather than a straight line. So the big difference has obviously been the focus and the intensity to get the result. And, you know, we just did a brick session, which is our hardest session of the week, where we basically did efforts on the bike and then efforts on the track. And, you know, before every session, your heart rate goes up a bit. Is that nerves? Am I going to get that quality in? Am I going to put in what I need to put in? Whereas... Obviously, when you're training for yourself and your own goals, you, you still want pressure. to put in, there's not that pressure. Mm. It's a different pressure. Yeah. And that's interesting. So, that intensity of just, and because this is my full time occupation at the moment, there's also, and because I've got sponsors and people that are supporting me, I'm like, well, I can't let them down. I've got to, you know. A good session in here. This is what I'm paid to do.
0: What a fantastic country we live in, where this can be your full-time occupation leading up to the Olympic Games. We we are so lucky in this country.
1: We are. It's amazing. Like I, you know, and and that's where sometimes I can get a bit overwhelmed because there's so many obviously people in really difficult situations. But yeah, strong sense of obligation that I have that. You know, it's my role, as I believe it's everyone's role, to leave this sport in a better shape than when I came into. And so I'm very conscious of that. And, you know, I do some work with Deaf Sports Australia and I want to work with Triathlon Australia to get, you know, more kids with hearing impairments during triathlons and so on. So that's where I, you know... I'm so grateful for this opportunity, but yes, you certainly a strong sense of wanting to give back as well.
0: You have such a positive attitude. Hey, you touched on something a little earlier that is really interesting, and we'll talk about that soon, the, the role of a guide in your racing. That's, that's a fascinating component of the, the racing that you do. But before we get to that, can you give me an idea of what your training week looks like now as you build towards the Rio Games?
1: Yeah, it's really um I guess, you know, we're sort of fifty days out. I'm up here in Townsville. Um we've sort of we've been at the Gold Coast for three weeks and then in Townsville for two to three weeks. And then we fly out on the tenth of August to go to Florida for our final sort of three weeks before going to Rio in September. So I guess now we're looking at we're probably about six, seven weeks out and it's about two to three sessions a day. So today was an hour gym. And then I came back and had an ice bath that was 8 30 ice bath 9, 9.30. Then I did another 45 minutes of just on the roller, tennis ball, you know, getting all those <laughs> trigger points and bumps that sort out. of stuff. That's right. So that was sort of took me to mid-morning and then had some lunch and then we went out for our brick session at one thirty. started at 2 and that went through to about 3.30. So then by the time you get home, it's sort of 4 o'clock and just had an ice bath and that's been the day so you sort of people think how do you feel your day but you it's quite easy Uh, (laughs) but obviously the luxury is around you know you purely just focus on your training and recovery tomorrow I've got a swim first thing in the morning at eight o'clock and then I think we've got a sort of aerobic ride at 11 that'll go for about an hour and a half and then I've got the afternoon off which is a physio appointment and some dry needling so so most days it's sort of you know, bike and swim or a run and a swim with um, gym a couple of times
0: a week. And all that recovery and the massage and the dry needling, as you say. So you're getting the whole package, aren't you?
1: I am. And, I, I, you know, there's a a bit extra that I invest, being a a bit more on the mature side of things um, in in terms of maintenance. So I don't take any shortcuts with that. You know, this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I'm certainly putting all the resources into keeping healthy and fit
0: Have you ever considered using the podcast format to deliver training and development programs to your people? Flexible, cost-effective, convenient, and incredibly engaging. Talk to David today about tailoring a program to suit your needs. And what sort of things do you have to do differently because of your hearing and your sight that Mm. that those other triathletes on the road who might be listening to this don't have to do? How do you do your riding training on the road and and your swimming in the pool?
1: Yeah, I do a lot of wind trainer sessions Mm. indoors.
0: I I thought that might be the case.
1: Yeah, so that can be a bit hard. You know, the squad heads out and I've got to stay indoors depending on the conditions and where they're going. Yeah. But if we go into a place where it's open roads, little traffic, you know, I can sit behind my coach and another athlete and they will sort of guide me because I can still see, well, essentially, it's just my peripheral vision that's going. So, so I will get out on the road occasionally and we'll um, get the bike, my tandem bike out and my coach will be my guide on that as well. And in terms of swimming, it's getting quite difficult for me to do squad swimming because Your vision is so tunneled, and you know, increasingly, particularly if it's a darker pool in Canberra on cold nights, it's really quite hard to see. Like, I you know, I keep bumping into people, and so where possible, I try and train and do some training by myself and not
0: necessarily always with squad. Right, that must be disappointing because that's part of the great thing about being part of the squad, isn't
1: it? It is, yeah. But usually, what we try and do if I get in the lane, it might just be one or two, two of us rather than the whole, you know, eight or nine or 10. So we just sort of mix things around. And I think that's the key is that all these things are possible. It's just the people's willingness to adapt and modify the environment. So Corey Baker, my coach, I mean, he was one of the first to get paratriathlon in his squad and he's shown the way and, you know, he he now has about four or five paratriathletes in his squad and, you know, two vision-impaired, an arm amputee, two wheelchair athletes, and he had a leg amputee. And, you know, he's shown that in a triathlon environment it's still possible to modify. And you think about triathlon, there's running, there's riding, swimming, and, you know, you've got a vision-impaired athlete on a tandem, you've got wheelchairs in their hand bikes, and getting the right roads and circuits for each of those athletes. It requires a lot of planning, but it's doable.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like you have a lot of fun working out ways to to get it done.
1: Yeah, we do. I mean, um, I think the other thing is the people around you enjoy having you there, you know, and because triathletes, we can get a little bit self-absorbed, you know. um, I don't believe it. (laughs) All about the gear and, you know, but I think people who do triathlon, it's just such a fantastic community. Like I I lived in Darwin for a year and I was a member of the Darwin Triathlon Club and That was the way that I found, like, got to know people in that community. And that's what triathlon does. And so, when you're training with people, there's a lot of great banter and sledging that goes on. And, you know, my closest friends are from the triathlon community. And I've got a lot that I trained with in Newcastle. And, you know, they would pick me up to take me swimming or just help me out as much as I could because they they would train at 6 a.m. in the morning and pitch black. And it's not possible for me to do that. So, and that was in running as well. So I would do a lot of sessions by myself. But where possible, they'd change the session so that I could join them or start later when it was lighter.
0: It's fantastic that you have that support and, and you've got all of these methods to getting your training done. But of course, race day is a different story. And and I love the element of your type of racing that means that you have a guide. It, it just brings so many more dimensions to it, doesn't it? So, so for those of you who don't know who are listening when you race, Katie, you, have, you are literally tethered to someone in the swim and tethered right, to someone yeah. in the run, and then you jump on a tandem bike in between. So of course, that person has to be a fairly decent triathlon, triathlete themselves to keep up with you. And you've done incredibly well with your guide for the Olympics, haven't you?
1: I have. So for the Paralympics, my guide is none other than McKeeley Jones who is uh, you know, a silver medalist at Sydney Olympics 2000 and she's ITU Hall of Fame. She's Australian Hall of Fame. She's, she was voted one of the top 10 women triathletes in the world recently and she was the first Australian woman to win the Hawaii Ironman. So, you <laughs> she's know, got
0: a pretty good just, resume.
1: Well, just slightly not so intimidating, but yeah.
0: <laughs> you must have been over the moon when your coach gave the news that McKeeley Jones was going to be your guide.
1: Well, I just knew then it was getting serious, yeah. you know. I just thought, oh, okay, this is for real, you know. They're really investing here. And for her to say, look, I'd love to support Katie. And, and we we hadn't met at the time that she was having that conversation with my coach. So the first time we met was four nights before our first race in Yokohama in a small
0: Japanese hotel. And What was that like? Were you nervous meeting her? I. Uh, I think
1: I was probably more excited, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, the whole thing was just so exciting. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to meet Michaela Jones.
0: <laughs> well, I was more thinking of the point of view, I'm going to meet the person who I'm going to trust to get me through the swim and the yeah. ride and the run.
1: Yeah, well, see, in some ways I think someone did say to me, Katie, you a very trustworthy person, because just the way that you, you know, I just, in some ways I just, I don't think about that too much. But it's sort of a natural thing for me. My first instinct, I guess, is seeing the goodness in people and trusting that they're going to to do the right thing. So, But obviously with someone like Makila Jones, with her technical capabilities, that wasn't going to be an issue. i would probably trust her more on the bike, and I would (laughs) myself, without a doubt.
0: (laughs) She's been there before.
1: Oh, yeah. First class rider. And that first ride, tandem ride we did together on that race, Yokohama course is no it's very technical lots of corners and it was raining it was actually quite wet it was slippery on the road and we were on a bike that neither of us had ridden before and it was a borrowed bike so we managed to win that race and I think that was it was great that race in terms of us getting to know each other and I think Mikili could see that yes I was someone that thankfully that she'd like to you know to guide and to work with so it's been a great
0: yeah, I've seen sorry. a number of interviews with you guys and you have a really terrific chemistry between the two of you.
1: Yeah, we do. She's, um, you know, I think because uh, she's obviously been an elite athlete for so long and whereas I've just been this, you know, like we say, sort of and warrior and, and uh, you know, a little bit more laid back and, you know, for a bit of fun. and And then just with my story and what I've overcome and, you know, we just complement each other, and we've both had our own different challenges. And you know, she's just had a remarkable life and moved to the USA. And you hang out with Mckeeley in in America, and everybody knows her. Like really? they come up. Yeah, we we're in a sports store in Florida, and this guy was just so excited. He's like, "Oh my god, I can't <laughs> believe it's Mckeeley Jones He's going to get a photo." And I was thought, like, "Oh, so she, because triathlon." That's really where it was taking off, wasn't it? In the, um, you know, in the earlier days, it was really the hub was in America before the ITU kind of became more European focused. So she's in the, she lived in Carisbag, which is sort of like seemed to be the spiritual home of triathlon, and there's a lot of triathletes in that area in San Diego.
0: Hey, take me back to that first time in Yokohama when you did get on the bike with McKeely Jones. Did you learn a lot about? how top level triathletes take corners and and just attack their right?
1: I did. But at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm really on the back of a tandem. They are in complete control. Mm. And so they're calling the shot. But yes, being such a technical course and the way she navigated around that, uh, we were still finding our feel for each other and what speed we could go at. But the thing that I have learnt with her is you talk about the dynamics of having a guide that, the moment that you have to race with a the guy, there is, it's just the whole another you know, kettle of fish in terms of your preparation, you know, everyone's got their own little ways of preparing for a race, and now you've got to work with someone else, like I, I'm a bit of a potterer, and I take a while to get things organized, and so I've tested her patience on many times, and at the same time, you know, she's very assertive and likes things done in a certain way, and... And so she's probably had to learn to be a little bit more flexible. And and so you've just got to really sort of have good self-awareness of yourself and how it's impacting your teammate to ensure that you both prepare well together. You get to the start line, you know, you register, you get your transition set up. And so we've got a nice routine now, and there's never been a problem with that. But certainly that's where the challenges are, is that it's not just yourself on race day and your own sort of Self that you have to think about. It's it's each other and just sort of working together. So you get there in a, you know, the best possible shape mentally and physically.
0: Because you have, of course, raced together a number of times. Now, as you said, you first met four days before your race in Yokohama. Then you went to Italy together, and and that's where you found yourself for the first time in the top ten in the world. That was in July. So we're talking barely, barely four months after you started racing in your category. And then in September of, of last year, you won the world championships with McKeeley as your guide. That must've been an incredible experience.
1: It was David. I mean, I mean that race in Italy, that was extraordinary. It was, it was a heat wave. It was uh, four o'clock in the afternoon, typical Italian start time. It was a no wetsuit swim. And, that was a fight to the finish. And McKeely just got me there in the nick of time. So to qualify for the World Champs was a massive achievement. And we trained together for two weeks in Florida prior to that. The great thing about someone like McKeely, and you start to realize why she's had the success she has had, it really is a meticulous attention to detail. It's really about focusing on yourself and preparing yourself well. And she has lots of little good sayings and You know, some of them I'll keep to myself. But in terms of her focus is very much just about yourself and preparing yourself well and everything else will take care of itself. And when we trained together, it was really interesting from a training perspective, some of the um, sessions that she would get me to do on the tandem bike. And this is where she really has it down pat in terms of just knowing where we need to lift the tempo a little bit or where we need to push. And I felt ready on that day. but I. At the same time, I just felt I, I was ready within myself and when we walked up to that start line together in our wetsuit, it was just her and I and we just had a quiet moment and, and she just was like, KK, okay, you know, I'm so proud of you, you what you've done to get here. This is just amazing. And she's like, Let's just let's just have fun. This is just gonna be such a fun race And I was like, Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> Uh, that was that was it was great. Like she just took all the pressure off because there was a lot of um, expectation, you know, and people were saying, "Oh, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna win this race." And but I wasn't thinking that. But for her, just to pr- bring it, she just brought it right back to very simplicity around. Let's just enjoy and celebrate this moment together, and let, you know, and what we've done and the hard work we've done. We we earned our right to be here, and it was just. And then she just what's the word, like the way that that race rolled out, she executed that race to a T, you
0: know. It really is a beautiful element to what you do. Triathlon is, of course, a very individual sport, but the way you do it with your guide, it's completely a team sport.
1: It is, and the other thing is you can't hide from the truth with each other, and that's the way life is as well. And I think in you have to be completely honest with each other my worst fear is that she would say to my coach or she would say to me, you weren't putting in. You know, I just, that just drives me. I just, if I'm on the bike and I'm feeling fatigued, I'm like, no way you are slacking I do not want Because she'll sense. feel it.
0: She'll feel it. And she gives it to me, like, don't worry about that. Oh, that's awesome. It's 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 really, yeah. it's a fascinating element. I, I love it. But, of course, you can have McKeeley Jones or anyone in the world, but it doesn't do any good unless you can keep up with them or they can keep up with you. So it's it's all on you to set the pace and to come across the line, whether it's first, second or third. So I think it's just an, an incredible story. Now, tell me, the Olympics start on September 7. You've got a little bit of time between now and then. Can you possibly hope to keep improving or get any fitter between now and then? Or is it just time for, for easing back on the training and freshening up. What's the plan with the training?
1: In terms of preparing the Paralympics, it's still pretty much in build phase and, you know, the, the next couple of weeks is still quite the intensity there. And then I think once, once we get to Florida and you've got sort of two to three weeks ago, it's just about polishing it off, keeping that tempo up and some sort of short, hard sessions. And how much taper we have, there, there might not be a lot. It depends on the athletes and where they are. And and for me, I think it'll be still a bit of a build and just maintaining that high level of fitness and then just giving it a little bit more of an edge about, you know, two to three weeks out. So things are on track and but love being in Townsville. The climate up here, usually we're in Canberra and it's, you know, (laughs) minus two to seven. So it's just fantastic to have this warmer climate. Townsville has been fantastic. And so, yeah, it's, you know, it's
0: just an incredible
1: time and we just sort of take one day at a time as well as we head towards
0: the Paralympics. Well, you say you're taking one day at a time and I imagine that there's still a lot of sessions between now and then, but do you allow yourself to think ahead to what the race might be like in Rio or the opening ceremony?
1: It's hard not to, you know, for example, the the world championships are on this weekend for the triathlon. Is that for you? So, yeah, but I'm not doing it. Right. So- the Australian Triathlon Australia they considered a number of factors around travel mm. mostly because it's in Rotterdam this weekend. So Triathlon Australia decided for a number of reasons that the Australian Rio Paratriathlete wouldn't go to the World Champ this year. And that was mainly around the travel and it was so close to the Rio Paralympics. And I say that in in pointing out that yes, everything has been about preparing for Rio, about that one race. <laughs> And it's quite incredible, you know, and, and it, it all has been about Rio since the day I signed on, you know. It was all about racing World Tri and qualifying for the world Champ. I had to be in the world champs in order to be considered for Rio and then winning that world champs. And then this year's all been about one race on September 11, Paralympics in Rio. And so sometimes you just think, oh, my God, like it's quite – you realize why Olympians and Paralympians – after such an intense build-up for four years, in in a lot of situations, you know the big downer that comes after that because it is such a massive build-up. But
0: a massive build-up all to one single event.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. and that's why it's so important. And the AIS is doing this. They've got a personal excellence team, and it's about ensuring athletes have balance in their lives and they're thinking about okay, what are, what am I doing after the Paralympics or the Olympics, and what are my plans and and certainly i that was a natural response for me because, you know, I want to know that I've got, you know, whatever work planned or my next sort of project because the intensity and the build-up for that one race. And, and I do visualise that race and I really just focus on, you know, the fact that I'll have my mum and dad, there, five brothers and sisters and six or seven girlfriends and friends coming over from Europe and just to celebrate that with them. So for me it'll just be, yeah, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I'd never imagined I'd find myself. There. It's
0: incredible, Katie. I am so excited for you, and I, for one, will be tuning on on September 11 to, to watch you go at it. I'm, I'm just super excited for you, Katie. I love your story. I love everything about what you've done and the way you've gone about it and your attitude and the whole dynamic is just terrific. Now, look, I know that you've listened to some of my podcasts before, so you'll know what's coming up. I'm going to finish with my three questions that I always hit you with. I suspect you've done a little bit of planning around these. Are you ready? Okay, bring it on. Bring it on, right. So thinking about everything you've achieved, Katie, what's the one thing you're most proud of?
1: Okay, I thought I was ready. The one thing that I'm most proud of, well, let me think, David.
0: Sorry, you've got me. I have, I've uh, changed my questions. Haven't you listened to any of the podcasts where I, I changed my I questions have. a few weeks ago? And
1: I, and I remember listening to them and thinking, I wonder if you'll ask me that. So maybe in some of your podcasts I've finished before the three questions have come up.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the one thing I'm most proud of, I think it's probably just a combination of lots of Amazing events that have happened—from being involved in the Melbourne Storm '99 Grand Final to to graduating with my master's degree to seeing what my brothers and sisters have achieved and my family and my mum and dad—like I think it's just a combination thing. But I I guess if you had to put it down to one thing, well, you know, probably the world champ. Like I—that was pretty. That's pretty exceptional. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah.
0: And you do have to bring it down to one because so, that was the question, so I'm glad okay. you narrowed it down. All right. <laughs> All right. Now, what's one thing that you know that you wish everyone else knew?
1: Oh, Well, I never like to assume that I know something that not everyone else knows. So, But one thing that I do get a lot of benefit from is meditation. And I think that if people took the time to take time away from their busy life, bit of stillness and silence, is a good thing in this very busy, cluttered world.
0: That's a great answer. Now, tell me, when you think about yourself professionally, and I guess that means for you at the moment, triathlon, what's one specific thing that you're working on?
1: Oh, it's the swim. Easy. That's an easy question. Is that your weak leg, is it? Oh, yeah. I've never been technically a good swimmer. I've tried so hard at it for so long. And my coach just tweaks what he can here and there. But obviously, it's a bit hard to tweak someone who's been doing something, you know, the way they have for so long. So, yes, swim. But I think a lot of triathletes would agree. It's such a technical aspect, isn't it? Like, it's just constantly refining and getting every part of the swim right. It's it's quite fascinating to do. And when I hear Ian Thorpe talk about swimming, like, I love it because it is. There's so many elements involved in trying to get that perfect stroke, which, I can only ever dream of. Well, I think I'll when try. Ian Thorpe's
0: talking about <laughs> swimming, he's talking about something completely different to what the rest of us yeah, do. Yeah, that's right. So what are you working on in swimming at the moment? What specifically are you, are you trying to get right?
1: My breathing and really just the placement, the, the landing of your – as you're coming into the water and, you know, the carry through, the kick <laughs> – David, all of it.
0: it. You know, I told you earlier on the phone, I went to swimming training today and I didn't mention your name. I went and told a few people, you know, that I was talking to someone and I described you and everyone said, oh, Katie Kelly, you're (laughs) famous, Katie. So I'm in Brisbane. You're a Newcastle girl training at the moment in Townsville. People at my swim squad knew who you were. So that must be pretty cool.
1: Well, that's what's pretty cool about the triathlon community, isn't it? Like I think... We all are so passionate about our sport and, you know, triathletes follow everything online and magazines and they're always looking for good tips and inspiration. So it's it's lovely to have that kind of recognition because, you know, they're the people I love that I certainly love doing this for because I know that although they wouldn't necessarily want to be losing their eyesight, but the opportunity to compete at this level, you know, is, is stuff that we dream of. So it's great
0: katie i have enjoyed our conversation so much and i'm super excited about september 11 i can't wait to watch you get out there and race good luck i hope everything between now and then goes exactly how you hoped and most of all best of luck on race day
1: thanks david i'll be doing everything i can i really appreciate your time and your audience today thank
0: you thank you And that was Katie Kelly. Just a quick postscript to that interview. Katie's selection was, of course, ratified by Triathlon Australia. She seemed really confident of that when we spoke, and she is now only days away from competing at the Rio Games. There's not much for me to add here, except that I continue to be dazzled by her story, her attitude, and her pure likability. I, for one, am super excited about her race on the 11th of September. I can't wait to see how she goes. Best of luck, Katie. I know you'll do us all and yourself very proud. I will, of course, share the lessons I took from my chat with Katie on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You can find it on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithanes.guru forward slash podcast. Share, like, rate, comment, all that sort of stuff. I love hearing from listeners and the experience you're having meeting our guests each week. I'll be back next week for the next installment on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.